Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. Thus there were 14 generations, in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, the word of the Lord. For those of you who... uh maybe new to uh, celebrating the Advent season, uh, today is the first week of Advent. Uh, and in the grand scope of world history, uh, this season represents and acknowledges and commemorates the pivotal moment in all of history. Uh, this is the season where we recognize and acknowledge that the God and author of all history has stepped into history. It is, uh, we celebrate this in order to remember the significance of such an event, that the God of the universe desired to be close to us, to experience our pain, to identify with our suffering, and to accomplish a work that we could not accomplish. Uh, And so today, on this first Sunday of the Advent season, uh, we're going to take a look over the next five weeks at the significance of what it means for God to be with us. And my hope for us in this series is that we might be enthralled by what we celebrate in this season. Uh, Because I think the reality is, is that often celebrating the birth of Jesus often gets lost in all of the celebration uh, of the birth of Jesus. Uh, But there really are really amazing and wonderful things Uh, that happen this time of year. For example, it is often a time for family, it is a time for friends, it is a time for feasting and for joy. But I hope that over the next few weeks, we can more deeply root that celebration in the profound, awe-inspiring fact that as verse verse 23 says, that we are celebrating Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate the coming of a Savior, a Savior who is worthy of all celebrations and all feasting and all of our joy-filled gathering. And so what we're going to do over the course of this series is we're going to mostly be looking at passages uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, though at the end we will take a look at uh, some passages from the the Gospel of John. But Matthew uh, uniquely roots the story of this incarnation, the coming of Jesus, Uh, by vividly showing us God's 
plans over history. He shows us God's purposes in the midst of people's fear. He's showing us the uniqueness of Jesus. He shows us how God identifies with the most marginalized among us, and he shows us the hope of things that are to come. And so to begin this Advent series, I think it's important for us to at least start by understanding what Advent means. What is the purpose of this season? Because I do think it helps frame for us uh, Matthew chapter 1. The term Advent is the Latin word for coming. Uh, Historically, the church has celebrated Advent, uh, the four Sundays before Christmas. Uh, And in those four weeks, Advent, in Advent, we essentially do two things. We look back to when Christ came, but we also look ahead to his coming again. We look back to centuries past and we're reminded that the people of God, before Christ came, they waited. They longed for the coming of the the Messiah. They anticipated the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for the salvation of God. Now today, we are on the other side of Christ's coming, but in so many ways, just like the people of ancient past before Christ, we too are longing for, yearning for, awaiting his return, his coming again. And while there are many reasons, many advantageous reasons for us to celebrate uh, Advent, one that I want to highlight is that it connects us to generations of saints longing for the Messiah. There's something beautifully transcendent about being connected to these generations, both from the Old Testament times into New Testament times, all of whom are longing for the Messiah to experience God with us. And here in this passage in Matthew 1, it shows us the extent to which that is true. In his opening uh, passage here in in Matthew 1, uh, the opening portion of his gospel, Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus that extends uh, all the way back to Abraham. Uh, and now what I want to encourage you to do is we didn't, not, we didn't print uh, all of chapter 1. That would have been too much. I would encourage you, though, if you have a Bible or if you want to pull it up on your phone, we're actually going to be touching on a couple of things in that passage. And so if you're interested in looking at uh, all of Matthew chapter 1 with us, I just encourage you at this point, feel free to do that. Um, you don't have to. I'll be referencing things along as we go. But I do want to highlight for you where we've started in chapter 17, where uh, Matthew is essentially giving us a summary of what he has talked about in the previous uh, 16 verses, Um, because throughout all of those 16 verses, what we see is a long list of people who have been longing for the coming of the Messiah. And though the genealogy that's listed there uh, might seem inconsequential to some, uh, I assure you that it is not inconsequential at all. Rather, the genealogy that is listed in chapter 1, this genealogy is a stunning description of how Emmanuel has been faithful from generation to generation. And so my prayer for us today is that we see how God has been faithful in the past so that it provides us hope that he will be faithful into the future. And so to do that, I want to take a look at this genealogy from several perspectives. First, I want to take a look at the purpose of the genealogy. Why did Matthew put this here? Uh, I want to take a look at the beauty 
of that genealogy, and then we're going to take a look at the promise of the genealogy. Uh, So first, the purpose of the genealogy. Uh, There are some, when considering Christianity, uh, or even the person of Jesus, they believe that Christianity is really just one of a thousand different religions, or essentially that it's an ancient philosophy that was established by this ancient Jewish rabbi named Jesus. However, the genealogy here in Matthew, and also there's another genealogy uh, in Luke as well, these two genealogies actually show us the extent to which neither of these things is actually true. And so what I want to do to start is I want to show you from a very high level why that is the case with these genealogies, Uh, and then we'll take a a look more specifically and closely at Matthew's genealogy uh, in particular. But I want to I want to address several things related to these genealogies in Matthew and also in Luke. Uh, The first thing to just say about these two genealogies in Luke and in Matthew uh, is that they are different from each other. So if you were to go home this afternoon and you were to read through the two genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, uh, you will see different names listed there. Now, some opponents of Christianity use this as a way of saying that, well, we just, well, we can't trust what the gospel writers are saying. They have different accounts, and so therefore we can't trust either one of them. However, the fact that they are different really doesn't actually hold up when, uh, or that argument rather, doesn't hold up when looking at these two different genealogies when you take a look at the specific nature and purpose and goal of these two genealogies. Uh, Essentially, even though this is somewhat debated, most scholars essentially see the two genealogies as tracing the lineage of Jesus through two different parents. So Matthew traces the line of Jesus through Joseph, Jesus' father, uh, and then Luke traces the lineage through his mother, Mary. Now, the Gospel of Luke, which we're not looking at fully today, uh, but Luke's um, genealogy, uh, all throughout, it's interesting, the whole book, but especially in the, uh, the genealogy, all throughout, Luke has a way of emphasizing the role of women in the, role, in the history of redemption. Now, this is a bit of a side note, uh, but what he does in his gospel narrative is actually really beautiful in the context of what he was, where he was writing, the time he was writing. Because in a time when women were often marginalized and ignored, God undermines those sinful norms by centering women all throughout this gospel narrative at some point. I hope that we can unpack that more. Maybe we'll do a series through Luke and you can see uh, what I mean by that. But What's important for us to see is that all throughout the narrative of Luke, women are emphasized, and Luke, when you read it, is spending a lot of time focusing his attention on Mary. And as a result of him focusing his attention on Mary, he's essentially arguing that and tracing the physical line of Jesus all the way back to Adam, because this matters, that Jesus was a real physical person with a real lineage that is rooted all the way back to the beginning. And so as a writer, Luke is very concerned about keeping this traceable historical record. Now with Matthew, which is of course our passage here, on the other hand, Matthew is writing his gospel primarily for the Jewish people. 
So Matthew is more concerned about showing the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah that they had been longing for and that he would be the one to fulfill all the promises that God had made to Israel. One of the important promises, of course, is that the Messiah would come and would be of the kingly line of King David. Now, to our passage, you see that in verse 17, where he emphasizes that Joseph, and by extension Jesus, is directly connected to the kingly line of David, as was prophesied. Now, of course, Jesus was not physically related to Joseph, Uh, If you know the story, given the virginity of Mary, he was not physically tied to Joseph, but he does receive the kingly mantle as he was the son of Joseph, which then ties him to this kingly line. All that's to say, though the genealogies of Matthew and Luke are different, there is good reason for why they are different. Now, the other thing that I want to point out is that these genealogies, especially this one here in Matthew, connects Jesus to the history of Israel, and to human history more generally. I'll explain you what I mean by that. So first, um, unlike nearly all other world religions, major world religions, even the dead ancient ones, uh, Christianity is deeply rooted and dependent on verifiable facts in history. Uh, the writers of the gospel went to, gospels, uh, they all went to great lengths to ensure that there were verifiable facts that could authenticate their message. Plus, nearly all other major world religions, uh, no one had a founder who also claimed to be God in the flesh who had stepped into human history. No other major world religion's founder claimed such things, and even the religions that did claim that the gods walked among the people much like the religions of ancient Greek, the ancient Greeks, the stories of those gods were never rooted in verifiable actual history. Rather, those were myths and those were legends. And so, of course, while this doesn't necessarily provide full credibility for the viability of the Christian faith, it does uniquely position Christianity in comparison to all other major world religions. And then, of course, as a result of that, one must then weigh the claims of Christianity, all of which are historically rooted in order to to evaluate the credibility. And probably the most significant historical event that we read in the gospel narratives that proves the credibility of Christianity uh, is the resurrection of Jesus. Again, there were great pains taken to ensure that there were historical, verifiable facts that could prove and authenticate the resurrection of Jesus. If that event took place, then everything about the Christian faith matters. If that event did not take place, then all of us here are wasting our time. This is a a completely pointless venture for us to gather and to discuss these things. But for the gospel writers, it was important that they provide historical context. And I hope at some point we can, uh, and I hope to uh, actually come Easter, take a look at some of the uh, arguments for the reliability of the gospel narratives for the resurrection. But for now, let it at least suffice to say that much like the birth of Jesus, the gospel writers went to great lengths to connect all of this to actual history. This is not myth. This is not legend. This is historical, verifiable fact 
It's why the gospel writers put these genealogies in there. And then lastly, the last thing I would say about, about this is that the life of Jesus is actually incredibly important for understanding the ultimate work of Jesus. You know, we talk much about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and rightly we should, but the significance of his death and his resurrection is all predicated on his life. And so again, come Easter, I hope that we can uh, look at that further. But in essence, the life of Jesus is what makes his death and his resurrection sufficient and vindicating. Jesus lives a sinless, perfect life in order that he might take our imperfections. This matters. The physical life of Jesus, the life that he lives while he is here, which is deeply rooted in the lineage of David, and it's connected to human history All of it matters. All of these reasons are the reasons why these genealogies are there. But of course, um, this is one, I think, one aspect of why we might take a look at the genealogies. Um, However, there are other facets. You know, what I just said, everything I just said is kind of the technical side of these genealogies. But if we take a look at the genealogies actually carefully, and we take a look at specifically who is listed in the genealogy, there's actually extraordinary beauty that is found in the genealogy. And I want to take a moment and highlight for you some of that beauty. And again, I would encourage you, this would probably be the time if you have the Bible and you want to take a look at some of the things that I'm referencing, this would be the time to do it. And I also just say, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles. Uh, do not leave here without taking one. We've got plenty for, uh, for anyone who may need one. But let's take a look at the beauty of this genealogy by looking at who is in the genealogy. You know, if you, list, if you look at the list in, in verses 1 through 16, there's a whole list of people. Um, some names are familiar. You've got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Uh, there's other names that are far less uh, familiar, like Nation and Asaph and uh, numerous other ones. But there are several names that are sprinkled throughout that actually reveal to us the character and the grace, and the compassion, and the justice of God. And in particular, who we see there are four women. You have Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, and you have the wife of Uriah listed there. Each of these women are powerful testaments of what God has come to accomplish in the person and work in Jesus. Let me tell you and show you what I mean. You may know some of these stories. First, you have Tamar, who is there in um, Matthew 1, verse 3. You can read about Tamar in Genesis 38. Uh, She was the daughter-in-law of Jacob's son, Judah. She had become a widow. Uh, And if you know anything about this time period, uh, to be a widow often meant that one was left in destitution if they were not taken care of. Uh, And so as a result of becoming a widow, uh, she ended up being terribly mistreated by her brother-in-law and her father-in-law, both of whom should have been responsible for taking care of her, but they do not. And she's left in such dire straits that she felt that the only way that she could take care of herself was to dress as a prostitute, to then trick her father-in-law into hiring her as a prostitute in order to have a child from him. She was the victim of terrible injustice and sin. 
And yet, she's listed here in the genealogy of Jesus. You have Rahab uh, in verse 5 there of Matthew 1. You can read about Rahab and her story uh, in Joshua 2. She also was a prostitute who lived in the walls of Jericho, a pagan city of a pagan nation. It was a city that Israel sought to conquer in order to move into the promised land. Uh, Of course, that is the the famous city where the walls came tumbling down. Uh, But when the Jewish spies came uh, before the attack, before they they came into Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, into uh, Jericho to check out the city, it was Rahab who hid them. She lied to her own people to protect them and then ensured that the spies got away safely. And so here you have Rahab. She was a pagan. She was a prostitute. She was a liar. And yet she's also listed here in the genealogy of Jesus. You have Ruth, also there in verse 5 of Matthew 1. Uh, She has an entire book uh, of the Bible named after her. She was a Moabite woman. Again, not Jewish, but a Gentile. And she was also a widow. In those days, for again, for a woman um, to be a widow, it was really uh, problematic because marriage and children were ultimately the only security that she would possess. And yet, she decided to commit herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was also a widow herself as she lost her sons. Ruth commits herself to her in order to help care for her, even though it almost certainly would mean poverty and suffering for her to do so. Now, what's interesting is that she was, again, she was not Jewish. And she had committed herself to a life of hardship. And yet, she's listed here in the genealogy of Jesus. And then lastly, last person to draw out, you have the wife of Uriah. Matthew 1 uh, in verse 6, you see her listed. You can read about her in 2 Samuel 11. If you know her story, the wife of Uriah is a woman named Bathsheba, who was a Hittite, again, not Jewish. And the story is simply this, that King David saw her, desired to have sex with her, took her, even though she was married. And though this is debated, uh, make no mistake that this was sexual coercion and an abuse of power, David raped her. When the king sends armed guards to retrieve a subject in his kingdom because he wants to have sex with her, and then he sends her on her way after he's done, there's no other way to describe that except rape. And as a result of this rape, She becomes pregnant. And so David has her husband killed in order to cover his tracks. Bathsheba was a rape victim whose husband was murdered. And yet here she is, listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, why do I tell you all that? Why do I recap all of those stories? There's a couple of things that we have to highlight and draw out. The first thing would be this, that none of these women are Jewish. That matters in the context of this particular gospel. Remember what I said, Matthew wrote his gospel specifically for the Jewish people, a people who prized ethnic and cultural distinctiveness and ethnic purity. I mean, even for some, the Messiah was really only going to come and save Israel and Israel alone. 
And yet Matthew reminds them that the Messiah is not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. Jesus has Gentile pagan blood coursing through his veins. And so his gospel and the shedding of his blood is for all people. But the the other thing that is worth drawing out is that the Advent story, this season of, uh, of Advent and the story of redemption is truly for all people, but we should make no mistake in noticing the fact that the story sets its eyes on the most marginalized, the unseen, and those who otherwise might have been treated as less than in society. And I've drawn out several examples in this patriarchal time of how God was viewing women in this narrative. Plus, Jesus, it's important to see, in the midst of all of those stories that I just described, Jesus intentionally roots himself in our mess, in our sin, in our injustices, so that he might know and experience the brokenness of this world, so that the redemption he offers is a powerful testament of God's abounding grace. I mean, what we see in this genealogy and in these stories is God saying, I want to be identified with the redemption and the restoration that is offered to the prostitute and to the liar and to the victim of injustice and to the forgotten and to the despised. Those who might otherwise be seen as unfit for my kingdom. And I will do this from generation to generation. And here's what's powerful about that for us. I mean, do you believe your life or the life of those that are around you to be beyond redemption? And do you feel othered or marginalized or forgotten or unloved or unseen? If so, see the beauty of this genealogy. You know, in this holiday season, I realize that there are many who lament broken family relationships. And I think many of us can identify and recognize what it means to have broken family relationships. But in this genealogy, would you see that we serve a savior with prostitutes and liars and murderers and failures in his family line. Jesus identifies himself with us in some of the messiest of situations, including family. And unapologetically, he wants us to see that through brokenness, there is restoration and there is redemption that comes as a result of his coming. And so know that your Savior knows you, he sees you, desires to embrace you, for he holds the power of redemption. But the final thing that I want us to see here in this passage is that it also gives us a clue and a vision of not what has just happened in the past, but also of what is to come. I mean, remember what I just described, that there was this longing that the people of God in ancient past had for the coming of the Messiah. They looked to the coming of their Messiah And yet, unless we idealize this Advent season, I want to show you why we, too, as we look to the coming of our Messiah, we can have hope 
in what is to come by seeing the promise of this genealogy. Um, at the end of the genealogy here, it shifts gears, and it shifts to the story of Mary and Joseph. Uh, now, just as a heads up, we're actually going to look at that story more closely next week. Um, but it's a story I'm sure we likely know well. Jesus would be born of Mary, yet Joseph, to whom she was engaged, uh, had not been with her sexually, and so the fact that she had become pregnant was obviously problematic. Um, if he were to break off their engagement, that would inevitably leave her vulnerable and ostracized. Um, but he decides to stay with her, and though it may have been um, viewed as lacking propriety for this, to, this relationship to have continued on, uh, he essentially takes on her shame of being pregnant uh, before marriage. He takes that upon himself and cares for her. Uh, and again, I just want to point out uh, that God, over and over again, um, decides to use complicated situations. Uh, he uses a very complicated situation to enter into the world, an unplanned pregnancy. But Joseph, of course, uh, we know that he'll stay with her. And in verse 20, it's interesting. Let me reread re -read that for us. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, this is Joseph, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take, to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now here's what I find to be interesting, and here's the clue of the promise that is to come for us, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who brings Jesus to the womb of Mary, her innermost being, which provides for us, I think, an enormous amount of hope when we think about the power of that ongoing truth, that it's the Spirit who brings Jesus. So just as the Spirit brought Jesus to Mary, one day, Jesus, when he leaves earth, he sends the Spirit not to Mary, but now he sends the Spirit to us. And what does the Spirit do when the Spirit comes to us? The Spirit, much like having brought Jesus to the innermost being of Mary, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit brings Jesus to us, to the innermost, our innermost being, by unifying us to Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that the Spirit of God dwells in us, and as a result, it is Christ in us. And so by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, in a way that I cannot fully comprehend, the Spirit literally makes God with us a reality right now. The God over all history the God who stepped into history, the God who so closely identifies himself with our brokenness, the God who did not enter the world through palaces or through power, but in humility and obscurity, that God did not just come 2,000 years ago, but that God is right here, right now, in you as you trust in Christ because the Spirit has come. And so I call you and ask you to consider and glory in this genealogy and to find hope in the fact that this marvelous God desires to be with you through Jesus and by the power of his spirit that is at work in us even now.
He is a God who is with us in generations past. He is a God who is with us in generations present. He will be a God who continues to be with us in generations to come until one day Christ returns. And praise be to God that our names will be added to the genealogy that is to come when Christ one day again returns. This season of Advent, of Advent is a season of celebrating. And so I would ask you as we begin the inevitable chaos of the Christmas season to remember why we are celebrating that our Savior has come, our Savior is coming, but that our Savior is here right now by his Spirit. Happy Advent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these beautiful truths. Uh, We thank you for the beauty of Advent that you have sent your Son, that God is with us, as Matthew writes. And so we think on Emmanuel. We think about the significance of what he has done in his coming. We thank you that he identifies with our brokenness, that your Son also has a very messy family history like so many of us may as well. We thank you for the hope that that brings. And I pray that in this Advent season, as we're reminded of these things, that we would um, be re-enthralled with the beauty and the glory of what he has done. And may this bring a new depth of celebration for us. And God, as we now turn to your table, we recognize that, that this table is ultimately a table that reminds us of everything that we have just heard, that Jesus has come and has identified with us, with our brokenness, with our sin, that he has accomplished a work that we, in and of ourselves, could never have accomplished. And so I pray that as we approach this table today, that we would be reminded and nourished by the beauty of what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen.